0: Welcome to episode 135 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Carol Gigliotti. Carol is an author, artist, animal activist and scholar whose work focuses on the reality of animals' lives as important contributors to the biodiversity of this planet. She's Professor Emerita of Design and Dynamic Media and Critical and Cultural Studies at the Emily Carr University of Design in Vancouver, in Canada. Her most recent book is The Creative Lives of Animals. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 134 others. Don't forget to work through our back catalogue if you just found us. Every person who reviews and writes or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Carol. How are you?
1: Good. How are you? Yeah, really
0: good, really good. We we're just discussing, we're uh, connecting a pitch dark Oregon to a pitch dark London across the time zones at the moment, so enjoying yes. this time of year. Yeah,
1: it's very, very dark here, but um, it's quite,
2: and it too, so it's even darker than, yesterday was beautiful,
0: but we'll just have to enjoy the artificial lighting for the moment, yeah. But And thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations and you, you're also very kind to send me an advance copy of your amazing book the creative lives of animals which i believe is out on the 22nd of november i'm not sure when this will be published but hopefully just in time for the launch um so it was a fascinating read and it's great to get the chance to talk to you partly because you refer to people like mark beckoff and jessica pierce who I've been lucky to interview already. And, you, and Laurie Marino is another who um, I have plans to interview in the future. So we have some connections and lots of previous yes. guests already. Yeah. Um, and as you know, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions. The epistemological question of what's real and how should we understand yes. reality? You okay? Good on, not What's real?
1: That's real. <laughs>
0: And the second question, just as important, the one of ethics, right? What matters and also who gets to matter, who warrants our compassionate moral consideration? Um, and I have a bias in the conversation because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple worldview called sentientism, which suggests we should take a naturalistic approach to epistemology and understanding reality, and we should take a sentiocentric approach to our moral scope. So every sentient being, any being that can. Uh, experience suffering or flourishing should matter in our ethical system, or whatever that might be. But I'm lucky in these conversations to talk to a dazzling array of people uh, who agree and disagree with that worldview. So it'll be great to understand your own personal journey through those big philosophical questions. But before we get to those, how would you best introduce yourself for people who don't know you already?
3: Um,
2: let's see. Uh, well, I've had a very varied career that has, at this point, kind of long. Um, another saying I'm older and, um, you know, I, I started out as an actress, believe it or not. And, um, which actually has come in very handy for many situations. Um, and then decided that I really didn't like saying other people's words, so (laughs) I, um, really committed to art and went back and got a a master's in printmaking. And about that time, too, I became much more
1: involved in uh, animal rights, actually, and that was, good Lord, um, the 70s.
2: So even though I had been pretty much vegetarian since I was 16, I, you know, off and on, but I really committed to it and, and my work as well, my visual artwork. Um, And then when I was in my forties, I went back to get uh, a doctorate from the advanced computing center for arts and design. And I wanted to do animation and use animation in my work, but I ended up writing a dissertation and found out that I was actually a good writer, which I always thought I had been terrible. So this was a big surprise,
3: Revelation. and I really
2: loved it. Um, and and I felt like I had a lot to say. You know, the words just sort of tumbled out. Um, but my work, my visual work, was about animals. There's a a, a series called um, the Dante series that I did. That actually, I just did an interview with Culture and Animal Foundation, and they that was in their archives because I knew Tom Regan and. Nancy Reagan really well, and I had met them through that piece. So our project, it's nine very large pieces, and it's based on Dante's Inferno, but it's about animal experimentation. So in any case, um, I wrote about ethics and technology when I was involved in in uh, that kind of you know, philosophy of technology, but mostly ethics. <laughs> and... You know, people at that point, and it's not as if ethics hadn't hadn't existed before, but in the arts, people would come up to me and say, "Just don't say the word
1: ethics." Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of tough. Um, um and then, uh, you know I, I I actually did something that made the art world A lot of people in the arts very angry and that was to criticize biotechnology or bio art and um you know i had lots of friends in the arts who no longer really my friends (laughs) but that's okay you know i mean i i struck a nerve and that was in the um in the 2000s so Mm -hmm. anyway it really it really i think made me realize that this was something that needed to be done that um at the time, two people were using using animals in their work um, as material. Yeah, you know, as objects, and and that made me very upset in bio art, but in other other forms of performance and installation. Um, so, yeah, so then I began to write quite a bit about animals, and I got I found my. My peeps in animal studies. Um, I I always wrote politically and uh, socially, so critical animal studies was something that I did and that I I really worked hard on and helped to develop. And uh, at this point, I was up at Emily Carr University of Arts and Design, and you know it's a great school and uh, a great place to be and great colleagues. But I still got. <laughs> I still got a lot of backlash, Um, which is interesting because I'm retired now, even though I'm writing constantly, and I work every day, and I keep reminding myself, you know, you don't have to work every day. (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, I, I find that the art world has changed its tune and that people have really started to clue into the fact. I mean, a lot of artists, of course, have started Had started to do that a long time ago. Echo artists, um, you know, that a big group of of echo artists from New York that you know have been involved in this for quite a long time. So there are lots of people out there doing this. But as I said, in terms of animals, it's still been very new for people to take animals seriously, and the creative lives of animals is about uh really uses um the research of uh biologists and ethologists and cognitive um psychologists, uh comparative psychologists, you know, a- a- neuroscientists to really um support the idea that animals are individuals, that animals are individual creative beings mm. who we need and are essential to biodiversity um and not our
1: biodiversity
2: biodiversity at large and we uh you know play a small part in that well of course in the anthropocene we've been playing a big part on that yeah. but i think that people are realizing that we need to change and but we need to realize that animals the beaver for instance is an aquatic engineer and we can't do without them um one of the reasons you know i wrote that book was that i was writing so much about animals as victims
3: yeah.
1: in industrial agriculture and experimentation and i just really wanted to say that animals are much more than that animals of all kinds including
2: i include you know, ants, uh, oysters. Um, you know, things that pe- people really, persons that really don't. Con- for a lot of people, don't don't think of them as beings um, that are important.
0: Yeah, and we'll come back to this later because that, that's an interesting observation in that even by extending our compassion to non-human animals as victims of testing and. Uh, research and farming for example we can still do that in quite a patronizing way that igno- you know ignores their agency and the centrality of their experiences it's, it's something it's like a sentimental extension of caring for it's, a, it's another sort of objectification in a way so that's a yeah that's a really interesting shift that we might come back to later okay
3: yeah. so that's
2: you know the short story
0: of, yeah it's fascinating you know. and you've, you've covered so many different Aspects of human endeavor and thought. And um, yeah, it's been interesting. And I, th- I think you've prefigured you know, some of the philosophy that we might explore now, too. Um, well,
2: especially with work in computer science, which was difficult for me to say the least, because yeah, yeah. I am a totally, um, I would say, very, in many ways, very intuitive person. So
0: yeah, yeah, different, mode, rational- different modes of thought.
1: A new experience
0: <laughs> yeah. so let me let me drag you back to the first of these really big questions what's real um so for many of my guests that's a story about whether they grew up originally in a religious household or one that was more supernatural or mystical or spiritual in some sense or one that was maybe more naturalistic scientifically focused maybe atheist or agnostic um and how that side of their thinking has changed over time about you know the nature of reality and how we should go about understanding it so you can wind the clock back as far as you like to tell that story. It'd be fascinating to understand your journey.
2: You know, I listened to a number of your interviews with people and I I just found it really fascinating to find what people had come from. I mean, I I always think my background sort of, you know, is on my being. It sort of shows, you know, I'm Italian. I was brought up Italian Catholic. I shouldn't say this. But, you know, in some ways, at least in our family, rationality was, well, my father was very rational, my mother, the rest, the rest of us were women. And it wasn't that we weren't rational, but we we certainly used our emotion strongly to make decisions. Mm. <laughs> and I say yeah. that with a bit of a, you know, foot in my mouth. Um, <laughs> but, but um you know, and being Italian Catholic, of course I was, there is this enormous, you know, supernatural kind of, I mean, you can't, you can't get more, in some ways, both naturalistic and supernatural of, you know, eating the body of Christ. I mean, it's very physically, it's a physical metaphor, but it also is, to Catholics, a real happening, but then it's about a spiritual being, and, you know, it kind of. yeah. So, um, in some ways, uh, I mean, I'm I'm not a practicing Catholic. I am. I would say that most of where I've gone and most of my thinking has been informed
1: by Buddhism, but I wouldn't say I'm a practicing Buddhist either. Yeah. So, um, but I, I do think that there are many levels for me of what I have come
2: to know as reality. Um, I, I don't think that the naturalistic way of looking at things, it's really important. Obviously I wrote that book, the creative lives of animals, yeah. but I also Chock full that, of
0: evidence and reasoning and scientific method. And yeah.
2: Yeah. And which is kind of funny because, you know, I'm, I mean I guess I have a background in computer science
1: but I'm not a scientist. I'm essentially an artist. Um but a lot of what uh you know I in terms of looking for creativity creativity itself is
2: an is a an unknown quantity in some ways. I mean people have written about it, people have studied it, people say they know what it is. I don't think that we do know what it is. I have a feeling that it is, and I wrote about this in the book, that it is a universal universal quality that is not just for humans, obviously, but is for at least on this planet, very much about all the beings on this planet. And without them, we don't have. Uh, A universal creativity And what I'm hoping to do with the book Is to actually talk about A universal multi-species creativity But Mm. um, If you look at our What we think of as reality Humans I mean you probably have a very different idea Of what reality is than I do I mean you know my sister and I Actually think that we were brought up In a different household (laughs) We have totally different (laughs) (laughs) memories (laughs) <laughs> she's she's like oh it was great and I'm like really <laughs> you know, was, I don't quite remember it that way but because I'm more of that kind of a person I see things that way where she sees everything as a positive so um, but I also think that there and this is something that I I thought was really interesting in terms of talking about what is reality um, obviously. Cultures have different ideas about reality. Religions have different ideas about reality, reality. Um, beings on this planet have very different ideas about what reality is. I know Ed young's book is is um, an immense world is very popular right now, for just that reason that I think people are really interested in how other beings sense the world, yeah, but I also think that, I've always had a, for a long time, a a real interest in conceptual physics. And the the reason for that is kind of funny, um, sort of. I was in a really bad car accident um, when I was in my 30s, and I couldn't really do much. I was a printmaker, and I I couldn't print. I couldn't really do much. And all I could, I could read if I held the book up like this, because I couldn't bend my neck down. (laughs) Not fun.
1: Yeah, sounds Um, awful. It was awful, but the good thing about it was that I read uh, Annie Dillard's *Pilgrim at Tinker Creek*, an incredible book, American
2: but very much ahead of its time. Um, and if you haven't read it, you have to you have to read it, uh, read it. She's she's really wonderful. She's also like Tom Reagan from Pittsburgh, where I'm from, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> sort of. Not the place that a lot of people want to be from, but I'm proud of it. Um, But anyway, um, I read her, and she talked about physicists that I had never heard of. Um, And so I started to read conceptual physics and just anything I could get my hands on. And one of the things I did read at some point was On Creativity by uh, David Baum, and I read most of his work. And I... I used it in the book, is that his ideas about reality, I think, opened up a whole new world for me. And of course, phys- physicists actually do that. I mean, yeah. you know, physicists who think that the world is made of strings and other people that think, the, way, you know, and, and Einstein used to talk about, you know, sp- spooky action at a distance, which is not so spooky anymore. I yeah. mean, just student physicists can make that happen. Um, and that is, of course, that one particular action is connected to another action. Very simply, I am going go into the
3: yeah. detail. At but, least at the but, subatomic um, level,
2: yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you're right. I mean, there is that. There is that idea that that is only at a particular level, but I think that those levels exist, and I think when Baum talks about The um, explicate order, which is kind of what we deal with, is enfolded into the implicate order, which is what, I hate to say underneath, but the way he talked about it as enfolded. And he was very, very confident um, that we were all connected and not just people, but things and nature and in a way that, you know, we're not aware of all the time. Some people are very aware of it. And I think there are moments when perhaps even you, you know, you would say to yourself, yeah, what, what, what's going on here? And, and you, you know, you don't know whether to follow that or not because it's kind of scary.
0: Yeah. Um, And one of the the things I find fascinating about, um, this sort of whole idea of epistemology is i you know i i do think that there probably is just one objective reality that we all share that has a certain existence that it ultimately is incontrovertible and i think that you know as we were talking about whether there are layers or different interdependencies ultimately we're it's all just physics and i don't mean just in a derogatory yeah. way i mean ultimately that's what everything is i think ultimately i'm made of subatomic particles, and maybe they're even made of something else too. Um, So there is, I think, most likely one objective reality, even if it includes parallel universes and lots of things we don't understand. But um, I quite like focusing more on the methods of epistemology rather than I do on a definite conclusion about what is real. So I quite like, this is partly why I use the term evidence and reason, because I think we should build our credences based on Evidence and reasoning, and that can yeah. lead us to some pretty crazy places, potentially. So yeah. one, you know like you and your sister, that can lead two different individuals with different experiences and different psychologies to have very different perceptions of this one reality we share. And when you go into the non-human animal kingdom, that can explode the possibilities of experience, you know into a radically various multi-dimensional range right. of things, all of which right. can still be you know naturalistic ways of understanding reality. Um, and I think it's a fair point to also say we should also be, you know, quite humble about how much we yes. do know and can know, which can leave us open-minded about whether there are other forms of connection or interdependency or um, things that we might today think of as magical that could actually turn to be real. And there are often parallels between people with a more mystical, spiritual way of thinking when they talk about how things are connected, and the way I talk about things being connected, which is well, physics says we're all connected. And ultimately, even an electron, in a sense, is everywhere all at once. And so so there's different ways of connecting those, um, you know, worldviews. But I'm interested in going back to where you started out with growing up uh, Italian Catholic, as you said. I'm assuming that as you grew up, you know, you believed the things you were told about God and heaven and hell. And you took on, you know, the ethical rule rulebook and, and the ethical guidance. Were those things that you just took on? Or were you always skeptical? And how did you get to the point of coming to coming to say, "Well, I'm that's not something I believe in or subscribe to anymore."
1: Yeah, it's it,
2: it, again. This is I have a. I'm sorry, I have all these stories. I can't. I'm a storyteller by nature, and I have to talk about things in terms of stories. I'm sure you noticed that from the book, right?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> story in there. <laughs> it it's would. great. Um, I was I definitely believed for quite some time up until
2: I'd say about 10 maybe and I was always a reader I read from when I was like three years old no kidding and I was it helped that happen because once you start reading of course you start to be critical of things because one book doesn't really match up with the other book. So um, by the time I was, um, I think it was like 11 or 12, I was reading Ralph Ellison and Jersey Kaczynski. Now, uh, this is the funny part. My parents, who were very protective, somehow never looked into what I was reading. (laughs) So I could read whatever I wanted. And, you know, Jersey Kaczynski, the painted bird. I mean, it's you know it's not something that really most eleven year olds should should, I don't know should. I was like that with my son. I told him he could read whatever he wanted, look at whatever he wanted. just let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's what it. And he's now a novelist. So he also works with homeless people. So he has both sides. But, um, yeah, I mean, I really started to be skeptical quite early, and um, and I really well, I did not want to go to Catholic school. I was brought up in a Catholic grade school. And by the time I hit eighth grade, I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And I convinced my mother I should get out of here because I played the violin at the time. And I said, but there's no orchestra. at the <laughs> Very devious child. Yeah,
0: anyway, good thinking, so- good thinking.
2: <laughs> and of course, then I got into the public school and I was like "Eh, hell with the violence." (laughs) so um but in any case yeah very very skeptical and I I still I have to say as as intuitive as I think I am and I know I am I'm also very intuitively critical (laughs) and skeptical um so that you know I even the Dante series I was already
1: sure that an- I knew that animals felt emotion and pain and were really—I always
2: had felt like they just were like us in those things. I mean, yeah, they—they they were different, but there were ways in which we were the same. Um, and I—I I literally, you know, when I picked up Dante again, I had read. The Inferno before, but I had to read it again and take it apart for myself as I was taking apart animal experimentation. And I do that with everything. So I'm very slow. If I write a paper, I have to find, you know, I can't just find even three sources, I have to find eight. And I don't think that's because I distrust myself, but I really want to feel that I understand something before. Yeah. In, in in other ways than just my own intuitive way because I think your, your attitude about being humble is critical and of all the things that we need to do in this world is to be humble and we're so bad at it as oh, yeah. a species <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Know, we really are I mean I which I sometimes
0: I, think is born out of our own insecurity and we overreact it, with a sort of arrogant human supremacy that has to put ourselves at the center of everything. I, it seems like a yeah. reaction to me, but yeah.
2: No. So, I mean, I, I, what, what you were talking about is there are these levels, uh, and, but it's all real Yeah, because it exists. So, I mean, in some ways I was interviewed recently by, um, Missing Witches, which <laughs> is in Montreal, um, a, a group, a coven, uh, Wiccas, basically. And, you know, um, I mean, I'm not Wicca, but hey, I, you know, Wiccas, I know lots of Wiccas and uh, Wiccans. And, you know, they're very thoughtful about what they're doing. And they're, and it's a very um, a spiritual practice
1: mm-hmm. in lots of ways, too, and ethical. And that's a big deal. and humble
3: yeah yeah
1: and and i found that you know even
2: though catholicism keeps talking about humility like if you i've always recognized a catholic because if there's food and there's only one thing on the plate you know who the catholic is because they say no you take it <laughs> now you know you're like you're catholic but is that really how they are? Is it really how Catholicism is? No, it isn't. Yeah. So we, do, as a species, just have a terrible time
1: being being humble. Yeah. What's interesting, I think, is that it's not, you know, we can't look at animals and say they have it all figured out either.
3: Oh, no. <laughs> well,
1: they're struggling just like we are. And, you know
2: they think of themselves very highly. And I don't remember the research on this, but that, you know, and some species will look at the other species and say, oh, you, know, <laughs> you know, we're so much better than them yeah. in their own way.
0: Yeah, um, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's dangers in sort of reifying animals or reifying nature and assuming these things are perfect. And there is just no perfect model for us to look at, right? I think um, you know, that's a dangerous path to go down. And And just to wrap up this, first section about what's real what i'd suggest just to play it back to you and you can tell me if i've got this wrong or not i sense that you probably do have a broadly naturalistic way of thinking because you want evidence you want you reason carefully and you're skeptical and you want that humility that always has some doubt um and that's part of what led you to the skepticism that led you to turn away from i guess the catholic beliefs and there being a helen hell and a heaven and uh, deity, a tripartite deity and, you know, that sort of stuff. That was that skepticism that led you away from that. But at the same time, your naturalism, the open-mindedness you have remains open to things that others might, might call supernatural, right? You know, who knows there might be something out there. And you do feel some affinity for this sense of connection or spirituality or otherworldliness to things like creativity or, connection is, is that a sort of fair summary? it's broadly naturalistic but open yeah, to I mean, going beyond
2: I, yeah I mean I, I it's just when someone says they are relentlessly naturalistic I just I find that to be problematic because you're missing so much I mean I do think that animals and there are many books on this subject have a spiritual sense um, you know and I yeah.
0: And I think it part it, it partly depends, I think, on what people mean by evidence and what they mean by reasoning. Because I think some people say, I'm relentlessly naturalistic. And what they mean is, I only use scientific research, right? So unless there's been a randomized control trial or a Cochrane study, or lots of people in white coats have done 15 papers on it, I won't believe it. And I tend to think of evidence and reasoning as much broader than that. I think of evidence as being any source of information about reality. So that includes your and my personal experiences. I know know this glass of water is here, and I haven't done any real science there, right? This is just my experience. So I think our experiences are evidence. And in the same way, I think reasoning isn't just sort of formal mathematical logic. I think of reasoning is in quite a broad sense that can include intuition and, uh, and emotionally driven ways of thinking as well. And we should be you know, we should be sceptical of all of them, right? We should be sceptical of all sorts of evidence, including our own experience. And we should be sceptical of our own reasoning, whether it's formalised or emotional or intuitive, because we are just sort of evolved beings, right? We've no innate right to be correct about anything. So that humility runs through. So I think that's, I might say I'm relentlessly naturalistic, but I use those terms in such a broad way that hopefully it leaves some of the space for the openness that you're keen to maintain. You're
2: not really relentless
0: about yeah maybe not maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> relentless may seem a little bit too strong i didn't inter- i interviewed barbara king and she she actually referred to herself in that way but through the conversation it's very clear that i think she would sort of share our you know very yeah. rich openness to a variety of different experiences and ways of reasoning. too but. you
2: know another thing that happens and i find that people and and this is a Big generalization, but I just in my own experience because I, and I'm pro- this may be my next book, but I am a DES daughter. I don't know if you know what that is, but and I'm not going to be able to pronounce what the drug is, but my mother took a drug when she was pregnant. At the time, um, I was born in 51 and they only banned it in 71 in the US. So with thalidomide, a lot of the genetic destruction happened was visible outside while with des it all was sort of internal so um i've been i have a defective kidney from i was born with a defective kidney of two ureters and so i i find that people who have not been ill (laughs) yeah um have a very different view of the world in some ways um I don't. I don't know too many people who haven't been ill, but I do know a few, and I'm always like, "Wow, wow, that's so incredible!" Because they don't have doubt
1: in a way. I mean, and again, I, I know I'm being very broad here, so please forgive. But I do think it's, it's our experiences really form us in yeah. many ways. Um, in in all ways, some and even though I have a very genetic
2: reason for being who I am, in many ways I also then have feelings about that and ways that I've coped. And I feel I got off easy. I mean, I you know compared to many women who did not and and still are not, and they're they're still doing
1: research and finding things that. Women my age, because the the women who took the drug were,
2: you know, of childbearing age in the fifties and sixties. So you know, and they didn't didn't ban it. No. And and I guess what I'm getting at too is that um you know, that doctors medicine, at least Western medicine, is very not really naturalistic, but it's based on rationality. It's based on data. It's based on, and yet I'll be
1: honest with you.
2: I, (laughs) I have never felt for a long time that doctors I've always been in a situation where, you know, they just didn't know what was wrong with me. They didn't know what it was. And of course, later it probably was from the DES, but you know, i have mistrust not uh, mistrusted, I guess i I don't trust medicine in the way that many people do, I think, yeah. Um, i and I, I'm a terrible patient now. I used to be a good little girl, but now I'm just a terrible patient. I drive any doctor that i you know that I see, and I see quite a few right now. you know i I can tell they're like, "Oh, God, here she comes again." because <laughs> you know, I'm like what about this? And what about that? Cause then I go and study things. Yeah. I I not read scientific papers, you know, yeah, and
0: you're doing the research for them in some cases. And I've, I've heard of that happening where, you know, the patient has, is, is more, more deeply read in a particular medical topic than the general practitioner or the general doctor that, you know, that they're talking to. And I think that's part of the problem with around, you know, mistrust of medicine is, it's partly about how we deal with uncertainty, and I think if, if as a doctor, you deal with uncertainty in an it's, honest, open way, and you say, come, it's, it's tough to say, but I don't know what's going on. The research is unclear. There's some indications. We're not sure. You know, and I'm afraid we're just going to have to work with that." That's that's an easier way to build trust than it is to deal with uncertainty by pretending you're more sure than you really are, and say, so, "Well, yeah. you know, here's the study. Here's the prescription. There's the answer," and then. You know, acting in denial when you don't wake up when you when it doesn't well, work out. So.
2: I think it also has to do with death. I mean, I I find that if no one's if if a person has not faced that in some way in a mm. real way, and I I have a couple times, it, it, you know, through
1: the DES thing, and and you just you really it can be very earthbound. Um which is a great thing in a lot of ways, but,
2: you know, the when you contemplate death, you go, you definitely go in other directions, you know, I mean, unless, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know if you ever remember the TV show, Dead Like Me, where, you know, the, <laughs> no, it was an American show with, um, what's his name? I can't remember, but um, they, the guy would give these little post-it notes to, to the dead, other dead people. And then they would go and they would be there when the person died so that they could explain to them what had happened to them and then take them wherever they yeah, were yeah. supposed to. Um, so they were kind of in what Catholics call limbo,
0: which I so always... you can't You can't escape your Catholic upbringing ultimately. It's still, oh it's still in there.
2: It's still in there. And <laughs> believe me, we have dinner, I'll say, oh no, you take the last piece. The yeah, training really runs will.
0: deep. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that can be another, you know, fundamental shift in people's perspective. And um, yeah, and for me, you know, I think I'm just another biologically evolved animal. That when I die, I will, you know, my atoms will return to the earth in a physical sense, and I will cease to exist, except in the memories of others. But other people take that into a very different direction. Yeah. But let's, if you don't yeah. mind, can we? Should we sure. move on to the second, equally important sure. question? And again, you've yeah. hinted at this already because it's so obvious. That's. You know one of the core themes of your life's work is activism and thinking about non-human animals. But uh, one of the th- things I find interesting in these conversations, and you've probably picked that up from the ones you've listened to, is as people move from a religious worldview that comes with a package of ethics, you know the Bible, the Quran, um and they move towards something that is either you know spiritual but not religious or more naturalistic, there is a sense of having to you know work out again what right and wrong, good and bad actually I... mean. And also as part of that, thinking about it in that uh, moral sense, okay, and who gets to matter? You know, we all grow up with an intuitive concern for our family and friends and people like us and those around us. But over time, that might develop to think about all other humans and it might, as it has in your in my case, extended out beyond that to other sentient beings as well. So what was, and you've hinted at it already, but what was your journey in thinking about what right and wrong and good and bad actually mean and who those concepts should apply to in our moral scope. How how did you go through that journey?
2: Well, you know, being brought up Catholic, I mean, uh, the right or wrong thing is a big deal. Um,
0: And in those days, did you see right and wrong as being ultimately about obedience to a deity? Or did you see right and wrong as being... Uh, independent of the deity, but you know, here are the rules in the Bible that define that for me.
2: Well, if you're if you're an Italian Catholic, you and I've tried to explain this to people is you know it, 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 you don't there is I I can't say there is no Bible, but Bible the Bible played very little role in my my home. Um, you know, it's just sort of you're you're you of course you're Catholic, and of course you know it's it's very different. And and I. Yeah. Again, you know, I kind of find that Italian Catholics, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're Catholic, but, you know, we also do this. And sex plays an enormous role, I think, in discovering that you don't really think that being Catholic would be a good idea because
1: then nobody would
2: reproduce, you know. <laughs> so it's, I mean, um, I I have to say that part of that was learning uh, you know,
1: about sex and 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 feeling, you know, that this was wrong. Yeah. And you're just, you know, and I was pretty sheltered and I and I I won't go into detail, but you know,
2: like I I had to really fight with that for a long time. I got over it, but um, you know, it's it's it definitely I think is something that again, like death, like coming into contact with death, coming into contact with sex. You know, these very basic things that yeah. we do or that we are possible. To, you know, that well, death of course is not just possible; it's, it's definitely going to happen. Pretty um,
3: much, yeah. <laughs>
2: But you know, you, th- these things really start to trouble you. Um, and certainly for me, I think you know that the idea that animals were not to be eaten like that was the first thing I just was like, I had an uncle. Actually, my godfather was a butcher, and he was very upset when I first started saying. And I first thing I g- gave up, or you know, said no. I and veal was veal and veal and you know in italian culture is like yeah and we were not really that rich so we'd have meat maybe once a week but yeah that would that upset
0: everybody uh and was the trigger for you uh you know a disgust response because some people it's like this is flesh and it's a more of a disgust response was it an a compassionate ethical response because you yeah. identified yeah. with uh, the victims you- or something else
2: yeah, it was that, that veal is a calf. It's a baby. You're eating a baby calf. You're yeah. eating a baby cow. Um, well,
0: you know, why, do you, why do you think you made that connection? Because, again, you're growing up in a culture that saw that not just as normal, but also quite a special, you know, important yeah. thing, right, that was by definition, you know, I'm a good person, we're good people, this is something we do, surely this is a good thing to do. Why, why do you think that? Sparked in your mind and not in others around you.
2: Well, you know, I can't say exactly. I was always a weird little kid. Um, and <laughs> Most sickly. of my
0: guests are weird in a, in a wonderful way. But I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And we all say we were kind of weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and now we get to talk about it. Um, but I do think being ill probably had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, yeah. that really makes you feel quite different. Um, you know, well, everybody's out playing or everybody does this. And, you know, for the first operation on my kidney, I was literally and this was a long time ago. And this is what I guess, you know, they did. I had part of most of the, my right kidney taken out and and I was in the hospital for a month. So you really learn to be very independent in your thinking. And actually, you know, the next year was when I st- found out about veal calves what how they kept them in these little cages um which you know they still do yeah. and force milk and all you know i just i was like no hmm. and so it grew from there i i just i i do feel that the and i said before that i trust my intuition in lots of ways and lots of times when i haven't trusted it i regretted it and now I trust myself
1: to say no this is how I feel about it and I think this is how I'm going to act about it
2: and and I do think acting on that I mean back to activism is really important and it wasn't until you know I I felt that You know, you well, also, you know, you have to realize I was in college when the Vietnam War, people were protesting against. So that was a big influence, of course, in people in my age group. And what a lot of my students sometimes say is, well, you're still that way, but my parents are really different. And that was sort of before when I was teaching high school, because I did teach high school for a while, which is also an incredible experience. my God, um, wonderful, but eye-opening. And, and then, you know, that idea that you can't just, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And once you can't unsee it, you have to do something about it.
0: Yeah. Um, Even if there are social pressures or challenges, that's a strong enough drive that you will, you know, you push through that.
2: Yeah. Uh, also, and, and this is I, this is way off the mark, and it maybe too personal. But in terms of always sort of saying, "Well, no, I'm not going to do that." I, you know, I would. Everybody in high school was doing drugs, and I was like, "Nah, nah." You know, first of all, I had all the drugs that I could want in the hospital, yeah. and I didn't like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I was probably intuitively known that I was crazy enough as it was. I really didn't need this. Um, but it also, I was able, I just became the kind of
1: person who said, no, no, I'm going to do this. And, you know, it hasn't always been easy, but I don't regret it. And for some reason, I sort of, I guess I had some sort of, I wouldn't say a, a shield, but the idea that you were, you were, when things got really bad with, in the art world, I would always
2: listen to Martin Luther King and say, "Keep your eye on the prize.
3: Mm.
2: Keep your eye on the prize. The prize was that, and we may never reach it, that people will think differently about animals. They won't eat them. They won't wear them. They won't, you know, use them as objects, as clothes. whatever all the things terrible things that we do to animals, and that was the prize.
0: Yeah, and I." F- there's a certain resilience that comes from that purpose. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. And
0: and um, so it it sounds like you've uh, clearly you, I guess, grant moral consideration to animals. And you have compassion for animals, and that's flowed through so much of your work. Um, what is it about animals that drives that? So this may seem like a technical definition. Uh, For some people, because there's so much overlap between these terms, because on the one hand, there's a compassion for all animals and there's also this compassion for all sentient beings. Now, the reason I care about animals is because of their sentience, because of their capacity to experience suffering and flourishing. That's to me what gives them moral status, because for me, morality is simply the choice to value the experiences of another As far as we can in the same way they value their own experiences so as soon as an entity yeah Yeah. the subject of a life exactly um and is that this is that your rationality for compassion for animals is it is it centered on their sentience? would you use that sort of terminology in that concept or is it something different
3: now
2: that i've written (laughs) the creative lives of animals um you know i didn't it's not i mean why write a book if you know what you're going to write about i mean the exciting thing about writing a book or anything or making art is that it's a discovery yeah you know an and exploration
0: school. in its own right yeah uh,
2: and you know <clears> if i i could have said that before yes pain suffering but there's so much more to animals than that yeah. as as there are with people and i definitely think that these things i know some people really some animal rights people really hate people yeah (laughs) you know human beings and i don't think you can do that i think you need to see the connection between things and certainly the way
0: yeah we're uh, we're animals too we're sentient beings too i mean yeah we qualify
2: we, we mistreat we have the choice we have the ability and so In many ways, animals do too, and they do make the choice to be compassionate sometimes, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, and
1: sometimes
2: if it means that they're going to eat or not eat, yeah, they they make that choice to not be
1: compassionate,
2: but um, and and go ahead and eat
1: the other being,
2: but and that's that's fine. That's but I as a as a this particular species, I have to live in this particular species as in this body, as a human being, and again, if you see something, you can't unsee it, and then you have to do something about it. So I do think that these things are uh, you know, compassion is central, I think, and the feeling that uh, you know that other people beings have a life. And that would include, um, for instance, you know, even people who disagree with you and people who are, uh, you know, you feel you don't really want to hang around with. Um, But also there's so many things that are wrong with the world. There always have been. I hate to say that, but even though right now, part of
1: me is like, my goodness, there's just so much going on, but there's a lot to do. And I, I find, I get frustrated in some ways because it, you know, I'm
2: not all, my health is not always that I can do what I want to do. So I, you know, I have to deal with that, but I, but I can write about it. And I, and art actually, I think is, can be a forum art, writing
1: anything that, you know, music, theatre, things that speak to directly to not rationality, yeah. but to intuition, to the heart,
2: um, you know, can be very, very valuable in activism.
0: Yeah, I agree. And Can we come back to that in a little when we talk about how to make sure. a better world? Because I'd love to get your views on the role of art in uh, activism and campaigning and driving change too. Um, so. And I, 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 I love the way you put this, I guess, focusing on suffering and flourishing as the sort of baseline, if you like. I think that's the, that's the, that's the only thing an animal requires for, to warrant our compassion is that baseline sentence, even if they have nothing else, which, of course, they do. But they have so much more, and your work on creativity is mind-blowing. And one of the things that I found fascinating about the book was the sheer variety of different types of creativity, whether it was play, architecture, social relations, um, teamwork, you know, putative democracy, tool use. I mean, the the, the variety is absolutely mind-blowing. But how do you think a deeper understanding of non-human animal creativity links to our understanding of their sentience? How do you think they relate? Or Or do you...?
1: No, I I, I do. Um, I think
2: pointing out to people or giving people the opportunity to see animals of all kinds as
1: essential and very powerful beings without whom we will be lost. And I think that's an important point to make. I, I just...
2: Uh, was lucky enough for the scientist. Um, again, you know, I'm not a scientist, really. But <laughs> I like to point out, <laughs> um, but you know, gave me a chance to do an opinion piece about what's in the book, and that was the major issue: was that we are missing the boat with conservation if we don't consider animals as individuals, part of uh, groups part of families, groups, cultures, we need to protect all those things and to give animals the chance to do what they do best, and that is to foster biodiversity in all its forms. And in the article, I use the beaver because the beaver is such a good example, um, not just of creativity and of professionalism it's yeah,
0: a lot of yeah. <laughs> workmanship <laughs> and, yeah
2: <laughs> yeah I mean and, and actually you know I didn't know this until I did the research was that beavers you know when they make their lodges they they're like oh come on you come in too they have all these other little creatures that live live with them you know there's room enough oh sure we'll just make it another look little- <laughs> and the things that beavers do I think are amazing and I, I, the other thing was to learn learn that
1: aquatic engineers who happen to be humans actually think that forests grew up around the water that beavers worked in so that they shaped the
0: landscape Yeah. yeah so one of the um Things I'm nervous about when we focus on creativity and intelligence is that some people will zero in on those things as qualifiers for moral consideration. Um, yeah, and and yeah. So yeah. where their thinking goes is there might be simple animals that yes, they might be able to experience suffering and pain in a very basic way, but unless they have these higher creative capabilities and ability to plan for the future, a certain level of sapience, a language, you know, and you can see where this is going. Yeah, once again we're special again you know we don't need souls to convince ourselves we're special anymore we can put ourselves at the top of a different pedestal that has creativity and intelligence and language so um you've already been clear that that's not the way you think that even if a animal had a very basic level of creativity and intelligence if they have sentience they qualify for moral consideration already but i don't know if you have any thoughts about that risk that people over-focus on, you know, the fascination with creativity and intelligence.
2: Um, yeah, I think they do. And I think one of the problems is, you know, as Mark Beckoff says, you know, it's the question is not, is this dog, this breed of dog, more intelligent than that dog? I mean, that's not the question. It's yeah. not comparing um,
1: each species to another or to us. The point is not to compare
2: other beings to whatever we think is normal or we think is real. I mean, that's the problem with thinking that you know what reality is. Um, And and I I do say in the book that, uh, you know, especially in the intelligence chapter, that... um, you know there's so many different ways of being and different ways of being intelligent um you know teaching art in the certainly in in high school or in I taught junior high and then high school and then went back to get my doctorate and then taught from then on university students um and graduate students but you know i learned so much from the the kids in high school particularly um because they had all different kinds of ways of being, and they approached things in very, very different
1: ways. so i i I get your point. I do. But I do think that it's possible
2: to be clear about that, yeah, so that other people can understand it and then explain it to <laughs> other people. I, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, when I was doing the Dante series, literally people would come to me and say, Oh, oh. did you do LSD? And I'd be like, No, that's that no, that's <laughs> you know
3: Long I, guess.
2: I, number one and number two, that's not what those pieces are about. You know, there's always the risk. Once you put a piece of art, including a book, out there, yeah, it belongs it doesn't belong to you anymore.
0: Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You anyway. sort of there's to some degree you're gonna lose control of people's interpretation right but that's part of the point but I think what I the experience I got from reading a book was the opposite because I found that by thinking about non-human animal creativity and these different forms of intelligence and their sense of agency and you know what it, what it might be like to be as them and act as them in the world actually gave me a richer appreciation for what their sentence might be like because I think as you can as you imagine oh. yeah. always imperfectly being those beings interacting with the environment with each other in these creative ways, you get a much yeah. richer sense of the nature of their sentient experience. And to my mind, sentient experience isn't just a sort of really simple pain pleasure line. It's got the whole world of possible experience in there, you know, existential angst and loss and love for a child and a sense of achievement and, you know, and then that-
2: well, very, very different um, definition of sentience than Many people have. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I don't know if you noticed, I described sentience in the the book and the idea that it initially meant to feel. And then that changed. And certainly, you know, what behaviorism almost disappeared. Um, But I mean, I you know, I think your very broad definition of sentience is very, very good. And that's what I meant in the book. And that's what I was trying. Yeah.
0: I think because, it's any I think it's any valenced experience so any experience that the entity feels anything positive or negative about and that could be yeah. you know a dazzling well, broad range
2: a word that works I think um, you know people think oh well oysters they don't they don't move so they don't have any agency well if you you talk about oysters and you learn about them you realize that's not true um they do have agency. I, I like I, I mean, I, it's not that I don't like sensuism. I've known that word for many years, yeah, yeah,
1: and yeah. I certainly agree with it. And I like your definition of it quite, um, a great deal, but I, I, but I also am'm beginning to think about agency because that yeah. idea that all
2: and then here's where people probably go,, um, you know, all <sighs> all of life is has agency. I mean if you listen to indigenous people um talking about nature, talking about the world, they talk about mountains as having agency. They talk about trees, they talk about rocks, they t- you know, everything, the water, the ocean um has agency. So I think I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the birds that have just come back to my tree for the first time in a long time. Um <laughs> So I think that word, too, is really helpful. Yeah. Sentient um, somehow means to me, and I'm sorry, I'll just quit this in just a second, but I have to get it out. Sentient seems to be a more static word to me. And agency is an active word. So I, for me, I've been using agency because I want people to get the fact that you um, get that meaning, that animals yeah. are active. And, yeah. I, and I'm sure, you know, Ascensions, I, I don't want you to, which, of course, you won't suddenly stop and say, no, I'm going
0: to leave I can, re, I can rename everything. It's fine. It won't <laughs> take long.
2: But, you know, I, I do think that, that agency has, has a place in there, that idea
0: that, mm. and
2: you, you are saying it.
0: Yeah. And I think, for me, um, we can almost flip the thought experiment around because we were talking about, you know, is it possible to be, sentient without having agency or intelligence or creativity. And I would suggest that, you know, it might be conceptually possible, but it's probably unlikely because I think sentience evolved for the same reasons intelligence evolved was it was adaptive to be able to model yourself and feel things that took you towards good things and away from bad things. Right. So I think in a way, intelligence and sentience in the set evolutionary are quite tightly bound up and and creativity to my mind is an extension of that. It's a a flexible capacity within intelligence, but but we can f- almost flip it the other way around and say, well. Um, so I think there's a rich degree of overlap there. I think our understanding of non-human animal agency, creativity, and intelligence can enrich our understanding of the range of their sentient experience. So that I'm all very comfortable with. I guess where I get a little bit more nervous is.
2: I love uh, what you say, Nervous? You're nervous about. It.
0: I'm not Sorry. nervous, but I think there can there, there can be some there can be some risk. Is. If you flip yeah. it the other way around and imagine uh, if there are entities that are not sentient, they have no experience at all, but we can still describe them as having agency or intelligence, particularly if you use quite minimal definitions of agency and intelligence. Because if, if you describe agency as you know moving towards some goal or you can even get to the point where, you know, subatomic particles or mountains or rivers can have some sort of sense of agency because they're doing something, you know, an electron is buzzing around the atom, you know, is that a sense of purpose or is it is it it's active in some way? Um, you can, if you describe intelligence very broadly as, you know, the capacity to solve a problem, you know, in a sense, a spreadsheet or a chess program can have a degree of intelligence. And my nervousness about you know, putting, I like binding sentience and agency and intelligence in a sort of rich way of understanding non-human animals. But if we focus too much on agency or intelligence and we put sentience to one side, I think there's a risk that that can, one, enable us to broaden our moral consideration to beings that have no capacity to care about that consideration, which doesn't necessarily need to be a problem, except that it might then flatten our moral landscape to the extent that you can say, well, if I care about agency and I care about intelligence and here I have a pig that has agency intelligence as it goes about its life, but here I have a blade of grass that has agency as it reaches towards the sun and it has intelligence about how to solve for the angle of the sun. And therefore cutting a blade of grass is no different from cutting the throat of a pig. And can you see where I'm going? That This sort of super expansive, moral consideration to every form of agency. If we forget about sentience, I'm worried.
3: I,
2: one of the reasons that I, or one of the, I guess, understandings, I would call it, because as I said, I felt very humbled by what I discovered when I was writing the book. Um, you, know, you kind of feel like, geez, where have I been all this time? Um, you know,
1: is that creativity, at least the way I define it in the book is a quality that is universal. And that universal quality is able to fit into very many different containers. Yeah. All different shapes and sizes. And Intelligence and creativity are—I would say that they are two different things. Creativity, I feel, is something, um, and I have to. Let me just—I have the book here, and I just want to read something that <clears throat> made made me stop
2: and reconsider. Now, you may have read this and. I'm going to read just this part from David Baum, um, because it really made me rethink what creativity was. And he says in
1: creativity, on creativity, um, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that what is being suggested
2: here is that intelligence does not thus arise primarily out of thought. Rather, as pointed out earlier, the deep source of intelligence is the unknown and indefinable totality, from which all perception originates. And I say, you know, that that seemed very opaque to me until I was re—I reread Baum when I started writing this book, and I asked myself is the deep source of creativity the unknown and indefinable totality from which all biodiversity originates now i specifically said biodiversity because i was talking about animals but i also think creativity and biodiversity are you know we i think we have to go back to being humble again yeah. and no saying as you do often we don't know what if creativity as we think you know we think about it as a painting or you know music or anything but actually creativity could be something and i feel is something that is profoundly important but profoundly unknown and profoundly affects how the universe exists could it,
0: so it could be as broad as including you know galaxy formation or solar system formation exactly. or the evolution of the universe as a whole, you know I, I think of it in a deeply expansive sense, yeah
3: yeah and
2: and, you know, I'm sure I can just hear you know I can just hear the. <laughs> no, uh, on my right side and my left side. Um, but that's just a word. That's just
1: a word, creativity. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah, that's true. But when we think about, if we think about creativity in that, you know, ineffable way, I think we might have some
1: understanding of what matters So that, in many ways, you know, if you're really humble about it, you know, everything
2: matters. Yeah. And if everything matters, oh, my God, what do we do about that? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I know that there are certain
1: things that I feel absolutely need to be considered, but maybe my thought is to uh, limit it as well yeah, and at some point, we might
2: understand, for instance, we were talking before about how people might
1: consider um, animals, you know, as creative creative. And then suddenly it would be, well,
2: this dog or this you know bee is more creative. But the idea is not to look at things like that, yeah, so changing thought is an incredibly difficult <laughs> entrenched thought and assumption incredibly difficult thing to do yeah. and I, you know i don't know if i did it in this book but i spent 10 years on it yeah and i i i certainly changed my thought um so in some ways you know it i suppose you know was a success but you know i i think being open to other other ways of def- definition, just to enlarge the I, the definition of creativity, yeah, to include other beings. And you know, like I, I think I say it towards the end of the book, and I'm not even talking about plants, you know <laughs> I mean, that's something that came to me too. i I didn't have that feeling really until I started to write the book and began to do the research and, you know, the interconnection between plants and animals
1: is so profound. And oh, yeah. so. Yeah.
3: And
2: then you have to realize that both are essential.
0: And I, I think for me, I, I think interestingly, there's quite a lot of parallels between your style of really richly expansive, you know, redefinitional thinking about, creativity and you you start from where we might intuitively think about creativity and you'll consider non-human animals and plants and maybe ecosystems and maybe galaxy formation and you you can in a way take it all the way there's a parallel between that sense of you know very expansive thinking actually in a very uh sort of materialistic scientistic way of thinking about the world that says ultimately we're all quarks and you know quantum fields evolving it's just exactly. physics yeah. And that's that's the end of the story. And and I think both have value. And ultimately, they're probably both right in that sense. They're almost different ways through. Where I'm nervous is that either route can risk ending up in a nihilistic place.
3: Yeah,
0: where we say yeah. everything matters, everything is connected. Therefore, nothing really matters in any distinctive way. Therefore, we just sort of we, we've almost give there's a risk we might give up on ethics and morality. And that's partly why I can appreciate those views about the nature of reality and how it's connected and use it very expansive thoughts about creativity and intelligence and how things work together in a physical sense or in a way we might think is ineffable. But when it comes to morality, that's why it does draw back to me to uh, valuing the experiences of others um, and the creativity and intelligence that is involved there. So that's partly why I do tend right. to draw back to Sentience as that baseline starting point to say, however we understand the universe and its interconnection mm-hmm. how, and its richness, there is something distinctively important about an entity that can value its own experiences. Absolutely. And, yeah.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think that, you know, with, it's funny because I did a, a conference um, 2011 um, called Animal Influence, and the idea was to bring artists together and have scientists and biologists and um, philosophers come. and It was great, and and um, Mark Beckoff, I asked him to be one of the keynotes, and um, we were sitting at a table with an artist. um, You know, after I don't know, it was dinner, I guess. We didn't get. Mark and I both had french fries because there wasn't anything else for us to have because we're both vegan Uh, So and wine. Um, So that made it better. Um, But, you know, we were talking and uh, I think we were talking about what was most important, creativity or compassion.
1: Mm.
2: And Mark both said at the same time, compassion. (laughs) (laughs) And just that tone of voice too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do really (laughs) understand each other. Um, And I do think that all that wonderful, expansive thinking
1: is not valuable if compassion is not involved. And that's where what's real
2: and then what matters or who matters, you know, comes into that important uh, question and really is profoundly important because you know yes i am i to be honest when postmodernism was really the thing it really just didn't do anything for me i i just, i felt like even then that i was like oh, you're so old i was like 40 you know so i wasn't <laughs> but i i just felt that it was so pluralist pluralist plural, pluralistic <laughs> i must have a lisp coming up um and and that was the problem too. And the idea that you know, which of course, you know, I think has gone out of favor, is that you know everything is fine and there's really no right or wrong. I mean, that's yeah. you know yeah. what I think. It, it, certainly, academics I think are are not going that way now. And postmodernism is now passed.
1: But I do think that that those two things go together and that's why your question what is real and what matters
2: or who matters what matters as a more general sense you know are so important to to take together
0: yeah i agree you know, i mean some people like to try and keep them separate but yeah i, I i'm not sure it really makes sense right if your if your ethics and morality aren't grounded in reality they have no grounding at all, arguably, and some people will reach for a supernatural grounding in that sense. But I think that leads us just as astray as something that's totally relativistic and or nihilistic. Yeah. Well, that that was fascinating. Thank you. It was really interesting to explore that with you because I think we probably come end up coming back to a sort of similar place to say what well, ultimately yeah. compassion, is, compassion is the Absolutely. core of it. Yeah. So let so the final crazily big question we ask is about how can we make a better future? So. Um, uh, and your work has spanned so many different, like if you like, levers of change, like right? academia, science, writing, visual and creative arts, um, activism. H- how has all of that left you thinking about the best ways of driving positive change? And, and do you feel optimistic, pessimistic or something else about our prospects for making things better for all sentient kind?
2: I do feel very optimistic when I look around and, I, you know, just don't think about what I, you know, just what I'm doing, but what other people are doing um, and see all these younger people, um, particularly, but also, you know, older people who are very much involved in thinking about these things and thinking about not just animal rights or the, you know, the, the, the moral Necessity of thinking about animals, but just in general, this idea that we are in all this together and this planet needs protecting, we need we, this is a, a very critical time to actually do something and you look at you know uh, just so many people out there who are involved in this, and then i i I feel optimistic. So I and of course, you know, there are times when I feel very pessimistic. And part of part of that is when I look at all the things that are still happening, um, I still get and I, you know, you know, I belong to organizations. I sign up for stuff. And so I get all this these images and this information about, you know, how animals are treated and how. Uh, human beings are treated, you know, and how we, and of course, you just have to listen to the. Well, uh, I hate to admit this, but I still have to watch the news at <laughs> five o'clock. I don't have a TV, but I watch it online. And sometimes I'm like, you know, this is so depressing. <laughs> I don't think I can watch it. But you know, in some ways, I I feel like if I don't do that, I get so involved in my own activities i i read the new york times every morning i read the guardian i try to read a lot of things that don't have anything to do with what i'm
0: interested in
2: um yeah. i just it's had diff- a grand and it is,
0: so and it, is dif- it is difficult because the news has sort of inbuilt negative bias you know good good news and progress often doesn't hit the headlines in the same ways well, as news right does but- yeah.
2: um i i just had a grandson and you know i
0: congratulations <laughs>
2: Thank you. Um, my son is a vegetarian, um, almost vegan, but not quite. Um, mm. vegan for a while, went back. Um, but he's definitely, ve- you know, I very, and very political. Um, he works with homeless people so that, uh, and his wife does too. And, you know, that makes me optimistic and they just had this wonderful young little baby. And, um, Giovanni, we named him Giovanni. (laughs) Um, That was Calder's decision, not mine. That's my son's name. Um, So I was really pleased. But,
1: you know, I've often said this. I am not going to be around to see people's attitudes really change towards animals. I think it
2: will. I'm keeping my eye on the prize,
3: yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> but I won't be here to see it. At least I won't be here in this form.
0: <laughs> you might be uploaded to a server somewhere running running your computer. Uh, running
2: and on a computer. I'm about to haunt everybody yeah.
0: well <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, just traditional haunting <laughs> may work.
2: yeah so i I am, but you know, yeah, so both. Yeah. And, and I, again, I think, you know, Martin Luther King, amazing person, you know, had it all right. You keep your eye on the prize. Otherwise, it's too discouraging. Otherwise, you'll give up hope and yeah. you can't give up hope.
0: Yeah. Whether you're pessimistic or optimistic, the important thing is you keep working. Yeah. And I think that's there's some fascinating work done by looking at historical social change movements. Um, yes. And they always feel too slow to the people who are trying to make them happen. They always feel too fast to the people who are resisting. And certainly on the animal topic, nearly everybody is resisting at the moment. Um, but when you reach a certain point, things can tip remarkably quickly. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
2: I will have to tell you that over the years, um, my experience is, you know, being, I can hear my, I don't, you can't hear her, I don't think. Can you hear her? No,
0: I just no. heard her. Just heard yeah. butt. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She's mad at something. I don't. <laughs> but over time, over the long period that I've been vegan, 25 years and vegetarian before that, and in-
1: involved in animal rights, I've seen a big change. I've seen an enormous
0: change. Yeah. So. There's hope I,
1: there. I am, I am hopeful.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I will let you go in a moment because you've been so generous with your time. But well, it's wonderful. Um, Great. a lot a lot of these conversations when we're in this section we talk about the sort of classic stuff right uh, persuading people to go vegan and individual activism we talk about institutional change levers and policy and subsidies and we talk about uh you know economic alternatives for example plant-based meats and those types of things and we talk about the intersections between uh, animal ethical causes and human ethical causes and all of those types of things um, but I just wondered if you had a thought about The role of the creative arts in driving change too, because that's something that, you know, most of my guests don't dwell on that much. What do you think that writing and creative and visual arts can do?
2: I think art, the arts and creative practices play an enormous role in change. And if you look at the history of change, you, you know, through time, you realize that Artists have had, played an enormous role um, because it sneaks up on you. <laughs> yeah. These ideas sneak up on you through the arts and whether it's you're reading a book. I mean, I I first heard about being an animal rights person reading actually another book by Jersey sure. Kaczynski. Um, one of the characters was an animal. And I was like, wow, you can do that. Oh, <laughs> I was very young. but. You know it was a thing. It was a thing. I could do that. Yeah. Um, and
1: And, yes, I think that it, art does change, plays a big role in change. It
2: and that that's hard for artists to take on, I think. A lot of artists really don't want to take on that kind of uh, responsibility. and and, okay, I understand that. And in some ways, they say, well, it makes for terrible
1: art. Yeah. I don't think think that's true. If you really look at some of the things that we value,
2: books, paintings, um, you know, symphonies, they certainly have to do with, they've taken on that responsibility. And you talk
1: about music, really? Yeah. Yeah. Music too.
2: Um, Theater.
1: Um, I did my, and I'll just leave you with this. I did my, uh, dissertation um on eth- it was called
2: uh, aesthetics of a virtual world ethical yeah. issues in virtual environments virtual virtual environments and um yeah. i used brecht as a model a the- theatrical model for virtual environments so the whole the central issue was that if you look at aristotle it's like destiny it's you have to take this on. This is your destiny. Too bad. Brecht was saying,
1: you have the ability to change and change the future. Yeah. So I like that. And yeah.
3: I
2: think, you ha- again, you have to keep that in mind. Everything we do makes a little change. And I finally gave up yelling at <laughs> or 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 lecturing them a long time ago. And now I just model behavior.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just, you know, it's not all successful, but it's made changes here and there.
0: Yeah. And the ripples flow out. Yeah. The ripples flow out. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. It's been a real inspiration to talk to you well, and hear your so
2: lovely to talk with you. You're just you're you're really, really a wonderful host in that you just are so generous um, with your thinking and with your time. So I I've really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor. Yeah. So what's the best way of people following you, learning more about your thinking, and of course buying your book when it comes out on the twenty second of November, and I, hopefully I'll yeah. be able to time the release of this so it will synchronize you with your launch. The,
1: the, thank
2: you. The book on um, New York University Press or. God forbid, Amazon indie book, you know, bookshop all over It's all over. And it's, it, you can read it on Kindle or whatever your, you know, electronic book reader is or hardcover. And the, the cover is um, by Melissa grew. She's a a photojournalist, wildlife photojournalist and
3: beautiful
2: Amazon woman that I've always wanted to be and have not been able to, she's really amazing. and uh, my website is basically just com. And um, sooner or later, I'll have my graphic novel site up where I have been working on a graphic novel for a while, quite an animated one online for quite a while and got sort of pulled away. So,
0: yeah, wonderful. I look forward to it. And the book is The Creative Lives of Animals. So, is there an audio book coming out soon, too? Or are you going to be reading your uh, own audio book?
2: i i have seen it i know that somebody must have bought the rights you know i yeah well you know academic presses so yeah yeah yeah.
1: all this stuff goes
2: on and i you know it's it's not my choice but but i i'm sure it'll be a good audio book i mean i i've kind of looked up the woman who Wants to do it or is doing it. She
0: seems great. so Yeah, wonderful. Well, I and loved it. I loved reading it. So, yeah.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. That really means a lot to me. I appreciate well, it.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to join Sentientist conversations, and it's it's wonderful to have you on our I'm a Sentientist wall on the website as well. So,
2: <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah. I am too.
0: <laughs> I think you count. I think you count. After this conversation, I'm going to claim you. So, you know.
1: <laughs> thank you so Brilliant.
0: much. Thank you so much. Please stay in touch, Carol. Take care.
1: Thanks, Jamie.
0: Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?